What is the path to peace for the war in Ukraine? Is America still powerful enough to impose global order? The US has just 4.1% of the world's population, while BRICS countries have 41.5%. In this conversation with economist Jeffrey Sachs, we discuss the origins of the conflict in Ukraine and NATO enlargement, US-China relations, and the decline of US dominance. Jeffrey Sachs is the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University and president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Sachs has been special advisor to three United Nations Secretaries General. He was an economic advisor to Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and former president of the Ukraine, Leonid Kushma. Sachs was twice named among Time magazine's 100 Most Influential World Leaders and received the Tang Prize in Sustainable Development, the Legion of Honor from France, and was co-recipient of the Blue Planet Prize. Jeffrey Sachs, welcome back to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you for having me. So help us understand the history of the war in Ukraine. How did we get here and how do we get out of it? And if the United States isn't the country to help broker that peace, what country is? This conflict is actually decades in the making. It didn't just come out of a Russian invasion in 2022, as is often said in the Western mainstream media. The war is often defined as an unprovoked attack in 2022. Actually, the roots of this war go back to the end of the Soviet Union and to the geopolitics around that. In 1990, the U.S. and Germany promised the Soviet government at the time, Mikhail Gorbachev, for the president, that NATO would not move one inch eastward if Gorbachev went ahead and disbanded the Soviet military alliance. In other words, there would be a deal that on the Soviet side, the military alliance, the so-called Warsaw Pact, would be ended. And on the Western side, NATO would not take advantage and Germany would be reunified, but NATO would not move one inch eastward. The U.S. cheated on that because as soon as the Soviet Union ended in 1991, the policymakers in Washington, especially in the Pentagon and in the permanent state in the United States, immediately planned for the eastern expansion of NATO. And by 1992, Ukraine was already on the list that NATO would go that far. In fact, Spignu Brzezinski, a U.S. major geostrategist wrote in 1997 the timeline for NATO expansion, including that Ukraine would become candidate between 2005 and 2010, which is exactly what happened. So this war started, in my opinion, because the United States could not accept a peace in which the military alliances of both sides of the Cold War would stand down. Well, many things happened over the 30 years between the early 1990s and today, but probably the highlights to mention are that in 2008, George W. Bush Jr. forced NATO, pushed NATO, but really pressed that NATO would announce that Ukraine would become a member. And that happened at the Bucharest NATO summit in 2008. The Russian leadership was furious. They had warned again and again, don't do that. We don't want your military right up against our 2,000-kilometer border with Ukraine. Then a Ukrainian president won the election in 2010 on the program of neutrality for Ukraine. Viktor Yanukovych won the election based on the idea that Ukraine doesn't want to become the battlefield between two superpowers and called for 
neutrality, which had been enshrined in the original Ukrainian Declaration of Independence, but then was abandoned by some of the NATO-oriented politicians of Ukraine later on. So in 2010, Yanukovych called for neutrality, but he was overthrown violently in early 2014 with the U.S. participation. So this was really a terrible escalation because the relatively pro-Russian president, but one who called for neutrality, which I think was the only safe course for Ukraine, was overthrown and the United States played a significant role in that. People know about the famous tape of Victoria Nuland, who was now our undersecretary of state. At the time, she was the assistant secretary of state, and she described who the U.S. would see as the next government three weeks before a violent overthrow. It's, it's pretty ugly business, in my opinion. Well, in any event, the war started in February 2014. It escalated between 2014 and 2021. The attempt to end the fighting at the end of 2014 and early 2015 came in two agreements called the Minsk Agreements, in which the government of Ukraine agreed with the breakaway regions of eastern Ukraine that those regions would gain autonomy. And then the government of Ukraine failed to implement the Minsk II agreements, even though they were endorsed by the UN Security Council. So the diplomacy failed again. And when Biden came into office in 2021, rather than trying to de-escalate, he called for NATO enlargement and reinforced the U.S. push to expand eastward. Putin strongly pushed back. Biden pushed back. The U.S. signed several statements in 2021 confirming that NATO would enlarge. I think this was all absolutely irresponsible. Russia masked troops on its border and put on the table a draft U.S.-Russia security agreement on December 17th, 2021, based on no NATO enlargement. The Biden administration formally replied that it was not willing to negotiate over that issue in a, a response in January. Then Russia invaded on February 24th, 2022, making clear that it was the failure to reach an understanding on the NATO question that was central to Russia's action. Four weeks later, Zelensky declared that Ukraine was accepting of neutrality. In other words, the initial Russian invasion brought Ukraine to the negotiating table. And during the second half of March, with the Turkish government being the mediators, Russia and Ukraine hammered out a peace agreement. Incredibly, the United States blocked it because the United States told the Ukrainian government, you fight on because American policymakers had two ideas. One was that Ukraine should not be neutral. It should be a NATO country. And second, that the war would be won by some combination of Western armaments and financial sanctions. And so the U.S. ratcheted up the war. Putin said, no, we don't stand down, we fight, and mobilized hundreds of thousands of Russians in the summer of 2022. And since then, we've been on a path of military escalation. I resent the fact as a citizen threatened by this that 
Biden has not negotiated over NATO and that Biden and Putin have not talked once, as far as we know, since February 24th, 2022. You know, when two sides are fighting, they need to talk and negotiate. But that's rejected. The hardliners in the United States, Newland, Blinken, Sullivan, Biden, say, why negotiate? We just escalate. We'll defeat Russia. This is, in my view, utterly reckless and irresponsible. First, it leads to the destruction of Ukraine. And second, it risks the escalation to nuclear war. So I'm very unhappy about this, and I very much resent that the mainstream media, like the New York Times, repeats the falsehood all the time that this was an unprovoked action on February 24th, 2022, seemingly wanting us to be without any context or history to understand where this conflict came from and how it can end. And a newspaper like the New York Times has a responsibility to tell the truth, and they're not doing it. Indeed. As citizens, we have the right, you know, a country is not looking after in the U.S. the prosperity of its own citizens going out, conducting these irresponsible wars when we don't have time with other things with the environment. Ironically, what seems to be behind it all is this insistence on a unipolar world, insistence on dominance. And while the U.S. wants to hold on to its status as a reserve currency, it seems under those economic sanctions that U.S. has also suffered, it might even be hastening the strength the currencies of other countries? Well, the basic point is the U.S. has 4.1% of the world population. So how could it presume to be the world leader? You know, the U.S. is a powerful country. It's a rich country, but it doesn't run the world and it should not aspire to run the world. That's a kind of madness. And the U.S. ideology for a long time has been that the U.S. should run the world. It's to my mind, unbelievable. But then again, I've spent most of my career outside the U.S. seeing the other 95.9% of the world. And I know that the other 95% of the world doesn't want the United States to run the world. It's not against the United States. It just says, let us have our own part of the world. We don't want you running the world. We don't want you deciding what our government is, who we are, how we rule ourselves. You know, you're just one place. And this, the United States leaders don't understand. They're very arrogant. They're very ignorant because of the two big oceans. They're very unaware of the history of other parts of the world. And we end up with this arrogant and naive and dangerous foreign policy because there's no doubt the United States is rich and powerful and it makes lots of weapon systems. And I'm 68 years old and the United States has been at war almost every year of my life from Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and Nicaragua and Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Libya and now Ukraine. Come on, give it a break. And the U.S. is also experiencing the reality that other places in the world are catching up on technology, indeed leading on technologies as well. And China's a very successful, very industrious, very hardworking society, which in the last 40 years has gone from poverty to a 
very significant world important economy. And the U.S. has a very hard time accepting that. The U.S. attitude, if you listen to congressmen who don't seem to know anything, is, oh, if China's successful, it must be because they're cheating. What about because they're saving more than 40% of GDP that the Chinese people have been engaging in a remarkable upgrading of education? Hundreds of thousands of PhDs minted each year. Massive scientific research programs. Come on, this is the truth. And so this arrogance is not allowing the truth to come through. But you mentioned one specific point, which is the role of the U.S. dollar. Part of the U.S. strength after World War II is, well, the U.S. was basically the only economy standing, and it was a technologically advanced, rich, large economy, the world's largest. And the dollar was really the only internationally usable currency for quite a long time. So the dollar system became the center of how you do international trade. When you trade in goods, they're denominated in dollars. When you buy the imports, you pay in dollars, meaning you use accounts in U.S. dollars, typically in the U.S. banking system. When the transaction is closed, it's closed through the so-called SWIFT interbank system. And so the U.S. has had a what France long ago called an exorbitant privilege that it could print a lot of money because the rest of the world was holding dollars, using dollars. The dollar was the basis of the world economy. That's changing now. And it's changing for three basic reasons. One is the share of the U.S. in the world economy is diminishing. So this means that the predominance of the U.S. is bound to diminish. The second is technologically settlements are going to occur in all sorts of ways other than through U.S. banks and so-called digital currencies, especially central bank digital currencies, will mean other ways to make settlements. We'll settle in renminbi when we buy in China or settle in rubles or settle in rupees when trade is with India and so forth. So there will be multiple currencies. And then the third part, which is really a matter of a bad set of decision-making, the U.S. has militarized the dollar, meaning that usually you think about money, well, you have it, you can use it, you can spend it. But the United States has come to say, if we don't like you, you don't necessarily have access to your money anymore if it's in our banks. So the U.S. froze the dollar holdings of Russia. The U.S. has frozen the dollar holdings of Venezuela. The U.S. froze the dollar holdings of Afghanistan. My advice to any government that's not getting along with the U.S. government is be careful about your money because the U.S. might come in and freeze your money. And so countries are looking to hold their reserves in other ways now. Perfectly understandable. And I think that this is another part of the move to a multi-currency international system from a dollar-based international system. And you mentioned the possibility of a reserve currency being the renminbi. And so There's other things that are not often reported about China. One, and I know that you've written about this as well, is that they're stepping in where America's policy of destabilizing and it's destructive, 
China, in some cases in the Middle East, is stepping in as a peacemaker, and it's less expensive if we can achieve peace. Well, probably the most remarkable diplomatic achievement of recent years, I would say, is China brokering a peace agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. In the American idea, those two countries were implacable foes. They could never agree. And for the United States, Iran was the enemy and Saudi Arabia was the ally. But the whole idea of U.S. foreign policy is you bring countries under your authority as an ally of the United States, like Saudi Arabia, and you fight your enemies on the other side. But China has a different idea, which is that Saudi Arabia and Iran had no fundamental reasons for this dissension, but they have plenty of reasons for cooperation. For one thing, they're both being hard hit by climate change. They need to cooperate because the water crisis is quite severe. They're both hydrocarbon economies. They need an energy transformation, which is very profound. And so the Chinese facilitated a reconciliation between the two. I'm very happy about that reconciliation, by the way. The fighting between the bitterness between Iran and Saudi Arabia divided Western Asia. It contributed to an absolutely devastating war in Yemen, in which the United States gave its military support support that killed a lot of people. And uh, it destabilized a region that needs a lot of economic transformation and technological upgrading and change. And so this agreement is really a big help for the whole region, not only for the two countries involved. And China gets a lot of credit, in my view, for having the wisdom to see that that was a conflict that could be solved, not just exacerbated but the U.S. approach was always to push at it. Uh, even when the U.S. made an agreement with Iran, the, the nuclear agreement called the JCPOA, the U.S. government walked away from it. And then it maintained sanctions on Iran because the U.S. is not really serious at making peace most of the time. It's got an us versus them mentality. And I find that very destructive and not in the U.S. interest. Yes. And I hope that China maintains this sensible approach because it's dangerous what's happening now in Taiwan. And just help us understand the situation like and that through line between you know, these proxy wars and what could happen in China. Well, the situation in Taiwan is like the situation in Ukraine, very explosive, very dangerous, and requires cool heads to avoid a conflict. The fact of the matter is that actually all three governments, let me say, the United States, uh, Taiwan, and China have a policy that there's one China. And whether it is the government in Taiwan or the government in Beijing, they both say there's one China. They disagree on what happened in 1949 and how China should be governed, but they don't say there are two countries. And the United States, when it established diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China, very clearly said that there is one China and has one China policy. And that is how to keep peace and uh, to make sure that this tension between Beijing and Taipei does not boil over to open conflict. But the United States started to play games with this. It started to form a military alliance with Taiwan, in effect, which is really coming into a military alliance uh, in the middle 
of one country. And this is an extremely dangerous and imprudent thing to do. And Biden starts talking about how we're going to defend Taiwan and the American politicians talk about how a war is coming. It's all utterly reckless, irresponsible. And what we should have is trying to reduce tensions, diffuse tensions through negotiation, through talk, through peace building ideas, rather than stoking the idea that some conflict is inevitable. A conflict would be devastating, of course, first and foremost for Taiwan, but actually for the whole world. And so this needs to be avoided and we need cool heads and we shouldn't have American politicians saber rattling. We should not have Speaker Nancy Pelosi fly to Taiwan after the Chinese government has repeatedly said, don't do that. Don't provoke. Don't stir up things. Don't make conflicts where there don't have to be conflicts. But the United States leadership doesn't listen very well. It's the same thing that when Putin said many, many, many times, do not expand NATO to Ukraine. The United States, oh, sorry, we don't hear you. It's, you have nothing to say about that. That's none of your business. And then war comes. This is very typical of American foreign policy because American foreign policy leaders are too arrogant and they don't listen. Yes. And now, 61 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis, you'd think we learned our lesson. And of course, America would never accept a military alliance on its doorstep, you know, say coming down from Canada or something like that. Well, of course, when Cuba aligned with the Soviet Union in 1960, the U.S. idea was invade. That's it. It didn't say, oh, Mr. Castro, you could do what you want. It's an open door. If you want to be with Soviet Union, that's fine with us. No, it said, well, we we invade. So that was 1961. In 1962, in the repercussions of that and in a really reckless gamble and reckless action by the Soviet Union putting missiles into Cuba, this whole conflict escalated to just the brink of nuclear war in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then in 1963, both President Kennedy and Soviet Chairman Nikita Khrushchev said, you know, we have to pull back from the brink. We have to live together. We should not be coming to the edge of global nuclear war. And they signed the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty in the summer of 1963, proving that even at the height of the Cold War, if the mindset is right, you can make peace. And that's the mindset that we need now. Yes, it seems like the neocon mindset never really went away. You know, just help us understand, because to my mind, you know, Ukraine is not indispensable for the U.S., right? It's just this idea of NATO enlargement. But there's other forces behind the scenes that are, you know, profiting or pushing. And I understand that Zelensky, you know, secured $110 billion in U.S. aid and of course, humanitarian, financial, military support. Also, like key partnerships with, you know, the BlackRock venture capital firm, Goldman Sachs, to privatize Ukrainian assets. So that would then deepen the country's debt. So help us understand that a little, the path forward. How do we get out of this? Well, when the debate raged initially in the 1990s about the wisdom or lack of wisdom of NATO enlargement, which was contrary to what we had promised and was not wise. A lobbying campaign took place in the United States led by the military-industrial complex. Very crude. That's how American politics works. Bring out the big bucks. So it was Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and other big companies became the lobbyists. And then, you know, American congressmen, they salute money. 
They salute campaign contributions. They salute the lobbyists. And so this is how American politics works. There are always financial interests that are also playing a role here. So we have a mix of ideology, confusion, lack of historical sense, arrogance, and money all stirring the pot. It has very little to do with the American people, though. The American people are not asked about anything. The votes on money for Ukraine are generally almost secret because they're not really debated. They're just measures stuck into some other piece of legislation so that you never have to debate the fact that we've spent more than $110 billion so far on Ukraine, and nobody's really been asked about it. Nothing of the American people haven't really been asked. So this is how American politics works. Now, what should be done? This war should end by the United States saying that NATO will not enlarge and Russia saying we take our troops home. That's the core of this. That was available in December 2021. It was available in March 2022, and it's still available now. It doesn't solve many, many other issues. What happens to the territories? What happens to Crimea? These are for negotiations. But the basic idea is that the two superpowers back off and that the war stops and that we go to political solutions, not military solutions. And that should be our priority. And so finally, as you think about the future, uh, the prospect of nuclear war, the kind of world that we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Young people should lead the way to a safer, cooperative, peaceful, and environmentally sustainable and fair world. This is the point. We need to build the future we want, not to feel trapped in this mindless cycle of violence and environmental destruction. The problems that we face are solvable, and they are not driven by the needs of the people. They're driven by greed or power-seeking of elites. And we need to have a new generation say, this is not working. We want a world that is at peace, that is shared in prosperity, and that solves the environmental crises, which have become so deep and are neglected in part because we are wasting our time, our lives, our resources on these useless wars. Yes. So thank you, Jeffrey Sachs, for being a voice for peace, justice, and reason, speaking truth to power, and offering viable political and economic solutions so that we can move in a positive direction towards international cooperation and greater prosperity for all. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much. So great to be with you. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.